you know, I don't think people want to be freaks to, but I do think people want to have a better understanding of the world through empathy. The idea that like, you're gonna fall in love in Paris comes from storybooks, right? That's what I kind of want to do. Like, I want to give us the same sort of, uh, you know, dignity as those kinds of places that get so much hype. In this episode of Change the Narrative, award-winning writer and producer Eric Galindo talks about his podcasts, TV shows, and screenplays, and why representation matters. This is Change the Narrative, the podcast about innovation in work, life, and culture. I'm your host and tour guide, Michael Hernandez. I have a foggy childhood memory of walking with my family down a narrow Los Angeles street at night. It was bustling with tourists. The warm, humid air smelled of leather and tortillas. Mariachis provided a romantic soundtrack, and I begged my parents for colorful candies. We were at Alvera Street, the oldest and original part of Los Angeles. I've always had mixed feelings about Alvera Street, though. As much as I love the energy of the place, it was really the only direct experience I'd ever had with my Mexican heritage, and the Disneyfication of the place left me feeling cheap, like the trinkets and souvenirs shopkeepers sold to tourists. I'd never been to Mexico, and everything I knew about Mexican culture was filtered through American history books, movies, and pop culture. I even grew up thinking ground beef and yellow cheese were appropriate to put in a taco. But after talking with Eric Galindo for this episode, and reading the work of journalist Gustavo Ariano, I realized that the foods, the fashion, the music of Mexican-Americans came from immigrants who were just using the materials they found when they came here, taking what was available to them and doing their best to recreate their own culture here. Hidden at the top of Alvera Street is a mural made by Mexican artist David Alfaro Sequeiros in 1932, America Tropical. It was too political for LA politicians and business owners at the time and was quickly painted over. It was forgotten for decades and hidden from view until the Getty preserved it in 2012. But when I went to see the mural with my friend Antonio, I had a kind of epiphany. Those rich colors and striking imagery Sequeiros painted might be faded and ghost-like, but despite attempts to whitewash culture and people by those afraid of historical facts, it survives under the surface and its message is as defiant as ever. Eric Galindo is a five-time Telly Award-winning writer, director, and producer, originally from Compton. He is the creator of Idolo, the ballad of Chilino Sanchez. He also hosts and is the head writer for the hit immersive storytelling podcast, Wild, for Elliot Studios, and the co-creator and executive producer of the Mexican Beverly Hills for CBS. He has written essays on life and culture for the New York Times, Los Angeles Times, and Elliot. He was the first managing editor of LA Taco, where his work won a James Beard Foundation Award. Along with his business partner, Patty Rodriguez, Eric recently launched Sin Miedo Productions to write and produce Latinx stories in podcasts, TV, and film. And Eric Galindo, it's such an honor to have you here and hear about the great work that you're doing. Thanks so much for taking the time. Thank you, Michael. Thank you. It's an honor to be here. Yeah. I mean, I think I first learned about you uh, listening to your podcast, Wild, uh, produced by Elias Studios. And I was kind of blown away, um, not only by the personal stories that you share from a diverse group of people. I mean, you interview kids, stand-up comedians, immigrant families, musicians, and, but how like original and fresh the storytelling techniques are in that podcast. And I think what really amazed me was how you structured and told your stories using a mix of documentary reenactments 
and personal biography. Um, but I think what really got me hooked was your tone of urgency. It's like every story was super important, just had to be told. And um, you know, I'm just sort of curious, like, what is it about telling stories that you find so compelling? I, I mean, that's a great question. I think um, I genuinely believe that storytelling has long been the way that the culture progresses, like the humanity has progressed. I feel like, you know, there's so much power in the belief of a good story. You know, you can go back to like the days of Beowulf, right? Or the days of like the Bible, the Greek myths. You know, for someone that feels like uh, largely my community has been erased from um, the stories, especially here in the United States, I do feel an urgency to tell our stories and get them into the historical record book and, and help shape the culture and humanize us and make us part of the, you know, the history of these peoples. Why is that important to you? <laughs> I mean, I because it's, it is it is the lens in which I, I tell stories through because it, you know, one thing I like to do is tell, tell everything very hyper specifically because I don't want to try and speak for anyone else. Um, so my, my story is a story of a like, you know, biracial um, first generation kid whose parents happened to come from one of the most violent places in the world and who also looks very like a little Irish leprechaun, you know? And so like the mestizo is wild. I like to say like, you know, <laughs> you don't really know what you're going to look like when you mix like Afro indigenous Latin, you know, uh, cultures together. And even, even within families, right? Like, especially I know in my family, I have Asian cousins, black cousins, you know, uh, even within my own immediate family, like two of my brothers are redheads like me, my brother, my other brother and my sister, they look, uh, they are very, you know, they're brown. My brother has like crazy curly, curly, like Afro indigenous hair hmm. um, because I had uh, grandparents who were black. You know, okay. um, but then I look like this and then I grew up in neighborhoods where looking like this was not, you know, was not a privilege. It's a privilege everywhere else. It's a privilege in society at large, but in neighborhoods that were like 70% Latino and 15% uh, black, mm -hmm. they did not like white looking people, you know? Mm -hmm. And so I got beat up a lot and, and, and sort of it framed this lens, which I tell the world through, right? Which I, which I see the world through. I mean, because I, I never quite fit in. Mm -hmm. So I had to make my own, my own way in, in through the world. And when I tell those stories, the stories tef definitely come from a perspective of like people who don't fit in to these ideas of uh, what we think society should be or what the rules are like. So yeah, I think that that is why identity plays such a large part. I think like there's a lot more fusion these days between cultures and between race and identity and stuff. But I, but I do think that those stories rarely get told and we always tell these monolithic stories. Mm -hmm. And then when we like, especially for Latinos, people are like very concerned with trying to tell everyone's story with one project. Mm -hmm. um, 
or are very upset when they don't see themselves in like the one project because there's such such scarcity and and it's totally understandable but i think that for me like the idea of very specific stories i think they're more they're way more powerful so i have to tell stories through my lens and my lens is always going to be like identity because it is something that i struggled with my whole life um and it was something that was always put on by other people right like people decided my identity based just by the way I looked like and told me you know I was not Mexican or I was not white or I don't belong here I didn't quite ever belong anywhere so I think that that's why those stories you know have that sort of like patina on them it totally resonates with me because I'm half Mexican my dad's Mexican my mom's white and I look white Right. Somebody, people think I'm Italian or something, right? My, <laughs> my brother's darker skin. So he definitely comes across at first glance as like Mexican, right? But yeah, it's like this, this um, identity crisis, maybe of like, am I Mexican? What makes me Mexican? Like, I don't speak Spanish. I don't have brown skin. I'm not Catholic. And I grew up in the US. So am I Mexican? And so that sort of questioning and wondering and wrestling with who am I and where do I belong? I totally identify with that. And I think that's why maybe I like your story so much because they have all of that, that mix and that angst and that struggle happening. Mm-hmm. Um, do you feel it's like, like a thing that you, you don't even realize that you're doing? Like, do you feel like you're, um, you have something to prove through your stories? I, I, I definitely, I feel a responsibility, you know, I think that, people have historically told our stories through a lens of victimization. Mm-hmm. And so I want to prove that our experiences are actually um, cool and aspirational even, you know, even with like the Chalino story, which is really a story of a tragic figure. But oftentimes when you, you get a story of a tragic figure, like, I don't know, like Hercules or something or Achilles or like, you know, Caesar, like Julius Caesar, like Julius Caesar's story gets told and he's like a dope ass dude. Yeah, he's (laughs) fucked up and he messes up a lot. But like people are like, I want to be Julius Caesar, right? Like, (laughs) and so when I tell the story of Chalino, like, like I am, you know, very, very much trying to prove that even though like nobody should aspire. Like, I hope you're not aspiring to be, you know, someone that gets killed on, like basically after a big show or on stage, like, but his story has so much beauty and value. And he's actually a very cool, like story, story to aspire to. And the same thing with immigration, right? Like right now I'm working on a, on a, on a, on a podcast about Urca, the, the 1986 amnesty bill. But, and it's so much more than an immigration story. It's a story of like of beauty and joy and resilience and people who really, you know, came together to, to make this beautiful thing happen. And so we, you know, I, I am trying to prove that these stories are actually fun, that our life is actually fun and joyful and beautiful, even when we are faced with incredible uh, adversity, even when we are faced with like <laughs> insurmountable odds, you know, like, so, so yeah, so I am, I think I am trying to prove that, you know, I, I do feel a responsibility to humanize my community. It's working. <laughs> it's great. <laughs> Thank you. <laughs> How did you get into becoming a professional storyteller? And I say storyteller, meaning journalist, writer, producer, mm-hmm. how did you get into that? 
You know, it's a funny story. I was, I was kind of like, you know, I was a little lost, especially in my like adolescence and, um, was kind of like on a bad path, like want to be cholo, like want to be gangster stuff. And my dad got me a job working at JCPenney. And there I um, I used to write poetry on the receipt paper when I was really bored. <laughs> you know, like I would just write it. And, and then one day, one of the my coworkers, she was like, oh my God, who's writing all these things? And then when she found out it was me, she's like, you're a writer, you need to come to school with me. And she was uh, on the college paper. She was a music writer for um, the Cerritos College newspaper. And I went to class with her. And then by the end of the semester, I was one of the editors. By the end of the year, I was the editor of the whole paper. So yeah, and, th and that's my friend, Patty Rodriguez, who I started seeing me with. She's the reason I am a writer. I always tell her because I don't, I don't think, I don't know. I don't think I would have thought that was an option for me, you know? And that's that's kind of one of the the other reasons I like to tell these stories is to show you know young people of color that they can also grow up to be storytellers you know because I didn't know that as a kid and it wasn't if it wasn't for Patty Rodriguez who's always had this crazy belief and this in, incredible faith that you know she was gonna do great things and that I was gonna do great things that I, I would never be here. So, okay, so you've written for newspapers, you've done blogs, you've produced podcasts, and now television. Um, what's your favorite medium to work in? Uh, well, they're all, they're all unique, you know, they all offer different, um, like, for, for example, like writing an essay is so personal, you know, that it gives you a space to really experiment with your own thoughts. And so, you know, a lot of the things I do, I have written for newspapers are usually essays about myself or about culture in general. I think uh, podcasting is so in intimate, mm -hmm. like it's such an intimate medium that um, it affords me the ability to sort of connect with people in a, in a very, on a very personal level. And I do think TV is so much fun like you get to um build worlds sort of create things out of nothing and 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 that is a very unique thing to do so it's just you know there's just it's a lot I, i'm fortunate that i get to play in so many different sandboxes because i i, I don't know I, I really love directing mm -hmm. so that is what that is why when you listen to one of my podcasts it does have like this, they do feel a little bit like their movies or TV shows because we're, you know, we're trying to really treat them that way. So it's pro I'm probably like fundamentally like a TV guy. <laughs> yeah. So, yeah, that's incredible. Like I, I could notice that the reenactment pieces that you had in Wild and things like that. So I want to talk about your most recent podcast, Idolo, for a bit. Um, it's really interesting to me. And I think I might have mentioned this before, but um, Idolo is marketed as like a true crime genre and mm -hmm. i'm not i'm not really a, a fan of that genre for some reason myself um you know i could care less about like the witnesses and the police reports and stuff it just doesn't really excite me but I, and just for folks who haven't heard it yet this is a podcast uh, trying to solve the unsolved mystery of who killed um the famous mexican musician chavino sanchez right um and mm -hmm. but for me it's it's a lot more than just a true crime podcast um it seems like it's it, you basically structure it around your exploration of five popular uh, theories about who killed him. And it sort of reminded me a lot of Rashomon, the Kurosawa film based mm -hmm. on the book. 
you know, because in that film, the Kurosawa film, Rashomon, we hear very different versions of a crime told from different perspectives. And there's four different stories in there. And um, essentially in that film, the takeaway is that truth depends on who's telling the story. And, um, you know, uh, in the final episode of Idolo, the widow of Chilino Sanchez um, even says that, if I can paraphrase her, she says that there are many ideas of who Chilino is, and they all confirm our own biases. And I thought that was so beautiful and brilliant. Like, she totally nailed it. Like, the story is what you want to believe, right? Um, And I think you even kind of summarize that um, at some point in one of the episodes where you say myth becomes reality if it's told enough times. Right. Um, And it just seems like this podcast is less of a true crime podcast and more of a philosophical exploration of how we perceive the truth. Would you say that's a fair assessment? Sure, sure. I mean, I think that, I mean, that's, that's high praise to to be compared to a Kurosawa film. But I, yeah, I do think that, you know, one of the things we really wanted to do was tell this person's story. Because what happened with Chalino Sanchez is he was this, this person who was kind of bigger than life in, in my in my in my mind in my community and um he i felt like he had become um a character and i wanted to know like what the human story is you know so Mm -hmm. i think that we felt like the best way to explore that was to explore like his life told through these myths about him but, but trying to separate trying to find the truth right like the thing about true crimes a lot of the times is like we get so uh, obsessed with the darkness mm-hmm. you know i think that that's why people are like really drawn to like oh my god the details you know mm-hmm. but but i think what we wanted to do with this one specifically is like examine the not not the what but the why right you know for me i i feel like it's a story of survivor's guilt right like mm. And when I tell the story, it's like someone who grew up in a, in, in a much more elevated, but very similar life than, than I did as a kid. And it's like a, a violent circle of death, you know, that's how we describe it. And, and I think that we wanted to examine why, why that cycle exists and how someone's environment can really, in many ways, create a destiny that you can't fucking escape. And hmm. And so that's kind of what we wanted to tell the story that way. You know, Chalino never got justice. There was never an investigation into his death. So we definitely wanted to give him that. But it was mostly, I think, an investigation into the, like, the circumstances of that community and why we are often caught up in these vicious cycles. Hmm. That's amazing. And, you know, I was going to say, like, in the final episode, um, you actually kind of break away from all the theories Um and start to reflect on what's going on. Um, and you talk about what can happen as a result of the popularity of narco corridos, right? Where they popularize mm-hmm. the stories of musicians and who are celebrating, you know, these narcos and their exploits, right? Kind of pumping right. them up to be these great idols, right? Um, and saying that it has a lot of potential to normalize real violence against real people. And there's real life mm-hmm. impact on that. And you also address a big issue in that final episode too, um, inside Latino culture, which is machismo. Right, that sort mm-hmm. of toxic masculinity that can mm-hmm. lead to you know violence against women, and I don't always see that kind of context provided in a lot of these uh, kinds of stories. And I'm curious why you felt it was necessary to address those issues in your show. Well, because I think that those issues are important to examine in at large, 
Um, I know that I grew up with a lot of machismo, for example. And when we are talking about what does cause these vicious cycles that leads people to continue to propagate violence, I think that, you know, a lot of it is sort of state inflicted, kind of beyond the circumstances that we can really control. But some of it is also like, just toxic masculinity, right? Like, I'm going to be the toughest person ever. So of course, you're going to put yourself in danger. And then putting yourself in danger puts other people in danger. And it just continues to create this vicious cycle. So at a very basic level for me, it's like, yo, I don't want to die, you know? <laughs> um, and I think that machismo can really like hurt you. Like, it's like, just kind of illogical, you know? But nobody teaches you that. Like, nobody just sits you down and says, hey, guess what? This is the path that leads to like, you know, dying over pride, dying over foolish pride or, or hurting someone else over pride. Like that, those kinds of things are a little like scary to me. And, you know, as someone who's, you know, who grew up in, in, a, in a place that, that had a lot of those kinds of um, traits, I really wanted to examine just kind of the basic, basic, like why this is bad. Because Chalino was great for many reasons. And I think that that music is a symptom of a lot of other bigger issues that, that you can't blame on music, right? But I think, and I think the reason it resonates is because it's a reflection of real life and people feel seen in these stories. But also I think we have to talk about how they also can contribute to the problem continuing, right? Like I. I I honestly don't know. Like, I'm not, you know, social scientist. I'm not like, I'm not smart enough to understand the big issues, right? Like, I just know that, like, at a very basic level, women in Mexico are dying, you know, especially. Um, people are people are having wars in the streets in Mexico, and and so when we, when for us, like, especially as Americans, we start to consume narco cultura in a way that's entertainment, what we have to, like, I hope remember always is that in the parts of the world where these stories are coming from, it's not entertainment. It's, it's, these are journalistic pieces, right? These are document. these are like audio documentaries that people are saying they're like the original podcast, you know? And that's kind of why I wanted to talk about it to be like, yo, I know for us, we can watch Narcos on Netflix and then go outside and just chill play basketball with the homies or whatever. But in Mexico, like they watch narcos then they go outside and they live narcos, you know? You know, a lot of the stories you tell are uh, so much focused on place. Like location is so important for everything that you tell. It's specifically Los Angeles, of course, right? Which itself is this giant mestizo city, right? Um, mm -hmm. And um, you know, in Wild, for example, that podcast—it's the entire season—is about defining what it is, what is home, what does home mm -hmm. mean, right? Especially when we're locked in during the pandemic. Um, and a recent article you wrote for Elias, which I think was really great—you uh, wrote this article for visitors coming to the Super Bowl of mm -hmm. some places they should go uh, visit. It was sort of like a treasure map of food and cultural sites around the real Los Angeles, not like you know, Rodeo Drive and, you know, mm -hmm. the Getty. Um, and, you know, it's funny, one of your recommendations was the swap meet in Santa Fe Springs. And I can just picture in my head, this family from Ohio going there, getting their minds blown. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I hope so. <laughs> that was pretty awesome. Um, so I, I'm curious, in terms of a story, what's so important about like location um, when you tell these stories? 
like I like to place people in a place and it's in a, in a place and time because I think we are kind of defined by our place in history, but also by our our actual physical place, right? Like if you um, grow up along, you know, the border, you're gonna have a different experience than if you grow up, you know, in New York or LA or even like Silicon Valley. Like I think I think places really do matter, but I also think that like <laughs> it's just beautiful, right, to describe a place in in the ways like the old like penny novel writers used to write about, you know, um at his at his most basic Dickens is a time capsule of an entire place and time. Mm-hmm. And I think that it's important for me to tell like my place, like I want my places to be in, in the history books, you know, I want them to be, I want swap meets to be like, you know, to, I do want people from Ohio to go to swap meets. You know what I mean? <laughs> I, I want them to feel like they're like a European flea market or whatever. You know, I think that like people are like the reason why do all of us want to go to Paris? You know, why do all, all of us want to go like, to London and and Cairo and like all these places because because they're great stories like yeah. uh, you know the idea that like you're gonna fall in love in Paris comes from storybooks right right like you know and I think that that's what I kind of want to do like I want to give us the same sort of uh, you know dignity as those kinds of places that get so much hype. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Yeah, it's interesting. Like your work reminds me a lot of Jonathan Gold's work. Um, if people don't know Jonathan Gold, he's the Pulitzer Prize winning food critic uh, for the LA Times who passed away a few years ago. Um, and while he was really focused on the food, it was really about the people and the culture. And his uh, idea was to like get people out into different parts of the city and explore, you know, at the time, like the Michelin guide would say it's a French restaurant with white linen tablecloths was the only worthy food to consider. Um mm-hmm. And instead he's like, no, taco trucks and these crazy places in San Gabriel Valley and stuff. Um, And uh, so I feel like you're in that same vein, uh, exploring the immigrant culture and the things that kind of go under the radar, but are just as, just as good, if not better than whatever traditional culture is where we're told is is supposedly really good culture, you know? Sure. For sure. Yeah. Yeah, Appreciate that. I love Jonathan Gold. I mean, Jonathan Gold wrote a piece where he talks about the, like how he ate all of Pico Boulevard. Yeah. And he's just, uh, yeah. Or even like post the, uh, the 1992 riots, he wrote about, you know, being on a rooftop. I mean, yeah, it's, there's a lot of, yeah. Jonathan Gold's a brilliant, brilliant writer and a storyteller for sure. So maybe we can talk about your story writing process for a bit. Um, sure. You know, a lot of work is done in collaboration when you work on podcasts and TV shows and stuff. Um, but I feel like it's kind of goes against like we, this mythical idea we have of a writer of, you know, being this lone dude sitting in an apartment in Paris, chain smoking cigarettes and hacking <laughs> at a typewriter, right? And maybe yeah. that was James Baldwin, but uh, <laughs> um, so maybe it's partly true, but like, I feel like this idea of collaboration is so vital to these other kinds of storytelling. And I'm sort of curious what um, what it's like um, for you to collaborate and how that might affect your storytelling and how it might elevate your storytelling. 
I do love a collaboration. I feel like, um, I mean, it's rare that you write and, and you don't have a collaborator. I mean, even James Baldwin had an editor, right? Like, mm -hmm, um, mm -hmm. but I have so much fun beating out a story, which is like, you know, finding the, the turns, the highs, the lows, the, the ending, like the climax, like all that stuff. And I think that my favorite thing to do is to do that with like a team um, sit around and talk about story ideas. Um, I think that writing can be very lonely. And I think I used to, I definitely used to um, romanticize that. Like, mm -hmm. you know, like I'd go write like at a bar or I'd go, you know, stay up all night writing by myself in a dark yeah. room. And I don't know, I don't know when to turn, but I definitely much rather have collaborators who you can bounce ideas off of where you can elevate the work together yeah i don't know i think collaboration is my favorite thing and, and that's kind of why i really like being able to do these these types of podcasts you know like wild i had an incredible team of, of people who you know I, I will tell you like the process like straight up even with with Ilolo, with some of the podcasts i'm working now is you know we we collect tape right just you know interview people or or go out and, and find archival footage things like that and we listen to the tape and then we start to talk about what the story is you know mm -hmm. what is the story we're trying to tell at large and also what is the story of this specific episode and in that process we not only did we find the the beats of the story but we also found like the framing of the story like what's the best framework for this should this be a rom-com should this be you know feel like more like a documentary for Chalino it was like we knew that it was going to be like you know a Scorsese film you know mm -hmm. um and so we were like we knew that and that that sort of helped us creating a framework really helps you write a script and I think that is what I love about the process so you know we would take the the story beats then we'd write it Someone would write it, usually me, and then um, then we go through it again. Like in podcasting, we have these things called group listens, which is mm -hmm. essentially like a table read, but sometimes mm -hmm. it's like recorded. So you do scratch tracking, or maybe even you went into the studio and tracked it, and you listen to it together, and then everyone gives notes and feedbacks. And I love notes. I love notes because they really help you see things that you're not seeing, or also help you realize that you're actually hating to admit something to yourself <laughs> but someone else has just caught it too and then once we went through that second round of notes you know then you take the script to a final a final place and then you're just doing kind of small line edits from then on and then it goes to you know speaking of collaborators then it goes to like the sound design process right and the mix yeah. the music scoring and you get to like you know, work with people who know how to tell a story in a very different way than, than a writer does, mm -hmm. right? They write sonically and they elevate the story that way. And so I do think storytelling from its inception, I think has been a collaborative process. I do think that is why I like being able to sort of play in so many different fields. Cause like, if I do want to just kind of sit alone in a, in a room and just write my thoughts, then I can write an essay and it'll be something I felt very compelled to say, but even then again, there's an editor, you know, there's editors, there's multiple editors who look at the drafts, who give notes, who 
help you clarify things you're trying to say because when you don't sometimes it's really easy like as a young writer to be like you don't get it and it's like and and make it seem like well they don't get it and that's their problem but truly like if they don't get it so like make it clear you know um and so i do think that that i have the incredible fortune of having some of the best editors some of the best executive producers some of the best collaborators that i've ever had like all the things i want to do which is like tell us a very specific story humanize my community make our experiences seem aspirational they are happening because i'm able to collaborate with some of the best people in the business that's amazing and i love that you pulled back the curtain on that whole process i don't think most folks realize what goes into it and how long it takes it's sort of like that old joke of like what do you call two white guys talking a podcast <laughs> you know yeah I, we don't we do, i've not done, yeah these podcasts are not like that these are yeah there's a lot of work that goes into every single episode and a lot of people and you'll hear it if you listen to one of my podcasts the credits i think the credits is my favorite part because i get to tell you how everyone how it is a village that is putting out this this piece of work and that every single person is integral to the process and their talents their very unique uh, perspectives and talents help to create something that you cannot do on your own. The Chalino podcast featured a team in Mexico and a team in the US. And I think that that is a very uh, important thing because like you can tell the story from like the perspective of a bunch of Americans. Well, yeah, they're Latino, they're Mexican Americans, but they don't know what it's like every day in Mexico and they don't, they can't give you that perspective. They can't shape it in that way. And so when, this, when you get people from all kinds of different backgrounds, the, the, the final product is so much more beautiful. I, I, it's, you know, that, that's something I learned from like the restaurant industry, right? Like from mm. food, right? You look at, you know, speaking of Jonathan Go, Jonathan Go's favorite taco was Marisco Jalisco, which is this taco truck here in LA that serves mm -hmm. these, fried um shrimp tacos yeah and the shrimp and those shrimp tacos are kind of a a fusion of like the the food the the owner of marisos Jalisco's grew up eating in mexico and what was readily available here in la and it was this combination of these these two cultures that created some of the best tacos um you'd ever have a lot of people would even argue like are those even tacos because they get so confused because it's so different than than what they're used to eating yeah um or you look at someone like roy Choi, you know who famously created you know or or at least is credited with creating korean barbecue tacos and just the fusion of these cultures and collaborating with um different types of chefs he's been able to create this incredible new cuisine. And I think that the Alta California cuisine in, in, in LA, which is kind of like first generation chefs, uh, like a fancy take on, on street tacos or a fancy take on street food, that is collaboration at its finest. You know, we've mm. done it with food for so long. We've done it with art for so long, right? Yeah. Like, and I think that to do it as writers is, is so beautiful.
That's amazing. That's a great uh, connection. It's a great analogy. I, I totally agree with you. And I'm a fan of all of those. Um, <laughs> uh, <laughs> um, I was having an online debate with um, Gustavo Ariano about what's a taco. You know, there's like the Mexican American crispy shell with yellow cheese on it. And mm. my, da- my daughter just turns her nose up to it. She's like, that's not a real taco. And he's like, right. I beg to differ. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Yeah. I think it's, I, I feel like, yeah, I get it though. I mean, I get why people are like, is that a taco? But it's like, yeah, it's a taco. It's just tacos you've never seen before. It's tacos that come from a, a place of necessity and have elevated, you know? Some of the oldest tacos in LA are these uh, tacos of Celito Lindo, which mm-hmm. is this little uh, puesto in Overa Street that's yep. been there since like the 1930s. Mm-hmm. And those tacos are the basically the reason why Americans eat like crunchy tacos yeah. because of this one little puesto that sort of revolutionized. Um, and, and they created those tacos because they had out of necessity because they had to work with the ingredients they had and they had to work with the like materials. And I think that that is why they're beautiful. You know, are they the best tacos in LA? That's up to like whoever that's subjective, right? That shit is subjective, but that they are, something you haven't you couldn't find anywhere else that 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 they are you know and that and they and they had a huge impact and i think that that is you know collaboration at its finest Hmm. i love that Hmm. um what are some of your own influences when it comes to inspiring your own writing and producing hmm that's a good question i i i mean I used to try and read, listen to, and watch everything. I definitely feel like it's part of a good job as a writer is to consume content. Um, I've been so busy that lately it's it's been a lot less co- consuming and more creating on the creation side. But I definitely like um, you know Gustavo Arellano. Like you brought him up, you know his book Taco USA is a fucking seminal literary work of genius like i i think that that's that's one of those books i read and i was like oh shit incredible <laughs> um robert rodriguez and mariachi i like to compare it to, to mariachi by robert rodriguez because you see it and it's mind-blowing because it is very like so american but also so mexican you know mm-hmm. those, those those combinations were were mind-blowing i i really like like adam mckay's work I, I grew up reading a lot of Bukowski, hmm. um, a lot of like uh, Pinero was this poet, um, you know, Sandra Cisneros, mm-hmm. um, the Oscar Wow, which is uh, Gino Diaz's book was fucking another book that was revolutionary. Um, and in terms of TV, you know, I watched a lot of, a lot. I grew up on TV. I watched, you know, The Office, uh, Parks and Recs, um, I've been watching Abbott Elementary a lot. Abbott Elementary is so funny. It's so good. Uh, Issa Rae show, Insecure. I mean, yeah, like for a while that was like, I'm going to be as cool as this Insecure is. Like Insecure is a co- like a show that like redefines what it means to be like the cool kids. And I, I was like, wild needs to be as dope as Insecure. Um, hmm. You know, the movie Friday is my favorite movie. Um <laughs> I really like, like, uh, there's a film called Dope, which is like Pulp Fiction, but in the hood. Um, 
you know, I, I, I watched a lot, a lot of like the classic films. I don't know, you know, it's just kind of like definitely a melody of, of, of different things. But I do think when I, when I think of whose careers, like I want to emulate, I think of people like Ava DuVernay, I think of like, I mean, I think of Ava a lot because like Ava does work that's incredibly powerful or like Barry Jenkins. Mm-hmm. These are people who are telling work that work that's very really entertaining, but is actually about so much more. Um, Jordan Peele does that. Um, again, Adam McKay does that. I think that there's there's a lot of incredible storytellers, you know, that have done that for so long. And like, I want to like I want to have that career. You know, I want to be like. I want to be able to tell really entertaining stories that are about so much more than just, you know, the entertainment part. Yeah. I think you're, you're on your way. You're doing a great job with it. Thank you. So kind of wondering about that, like what, what makes for a good story? Yeah. I mean, that's very subjective, but I do think like characters, like really, um, I love, very, very complex characters. And, and complex sometimes is like short for like bad people, but but I really do mean like people who are just so fascinating. You know, people who are like, you can, you know, I think Leslie Nope on Parks and Recs is a very complex character. Mm. Um, you know, same with Michael Scott, right? Like here's a guy who just wants to be loved. And mm. And through that, he it informs every single thing he does, good or bad. It's just a desperate need for love um, and friendship. Hmm. I think that those are the kinds of things that I that that I like is like a really a character who's driven by something by some sort of force that's beyond their control. I love stories that just really follow like the hero's journey um, because I do think that we are all capable of like our own human revolution. And I think that is something that for people who, who grow up in the types of neighborhoods that I grew up in, with the type of, you know, abject poverty that we experience, like you want to believe that in the hero's journey, you know, where you can overcome obstacles, where you can be transformed, where you can transform any moment and sort of come out on the other side, still yourself but a little bit different. So in that sense, I think that, that that really makes a good story. I do think stories that aren't getting told usually is what I really like. And also I do, if you have a very creative way to tell a story, usually that's a good sign, you know, where you're just like, oh, you know, like you look at something like Breaking Bad where they were just like, oh, I'm going to tell this story in a, in a rewound sort of way, right? Like, I'm going to tell you a story of a man at these highs and lows in his life, and then I'm going to take you back to how he got there. I think that's mm-hmm. really interesting. Mm-hmm. But yeah, I think I think those those are some of the elements I really look for, look for in a story. And, and again, stories that are about so much more than what they sound like, right? So is that, I'm sort of curious because I think a lot of, um, traditionally maybe, a lot of writers or activists would sort of take on these issues that you're talking about representation and bias and all these things sort of head on. And it seems like you're using genre and these other formats or like you kind of like it's entertainment and sort of a sneak attack to try to get like your ideas across to people. Is that maybe kind of part of the strategy of, of like why you like those kinds of stories and your stories that you produce? Yeah, totally. Because I think I, I'm, I don't like people telling me what to think and I don't like, 
I don't, you know, I don't, I don't like to get into, you know, arguments. I just, I think that stories are much more powerful. So if you really want to articulate something or, or shift the culture, I think you need to do it through storytelling and through entertainment. So I do think that is what I'm trying to do. Like, you know, your parents can tell you a million times to eat your vegetables, right? And you just being like, no, or they can make you like some great tacos and put like, you know, shredded lettuce, or they could put cabbage or cebolla y cilantro and suddenly you're eating vegetables but you don't even know it because you're eating this delicious ass taco you know and i think that that is that is definitely the strategy and everything that we do because you know i don't think people want to be preached to but i do think people want to have an under a better understanding of the world through empathy and so that is kind of what, what my stories are attempting to do is to give to create empathy um, I'm sure there's a lot of storytellers out there listening to this podcast right now or people who are aspiring writers. Um, what advice would you have for folks who are writing their own stories? I like to think of myself as the hero of my own story in life. And I like to think that that allows me to view the events of my life as so much more than tragedy or or victimization or mundane mundanity like there's just these things that we sometimes think on so i think my advice would be like put yourself in in that situation right as you're telling if you if you are telling your story sit down and and try to imagine it's someone else right be like if this had happened to someone else if someone else had grown up as a mexican redhead in the hood in southeast los angeles in the 90s during the height of the gang wars and the race wars and like and somehow like is now working at like an npr station like wow that's a fucking story you know what i mean so i think that 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 would be my advice to view yourself as a character and, and try to imagine anything that happened to you happening to someone else and and if and if in doing so you're like wow that's an amazing thing then i think that's a story worth telling and the other thing I would I would like is to, you know, find collaborators, find people who you trust that can help you elevate your storytelling. And also there are rules to storytelling. You know, I break a lot of the rules, but I, I, I know them, you know, and I think that that's the other thing is like learn the rules because I, I think storytelling is like playing the guitar, like anybody can play the chords, but to get to do it really well, you really, really need to understand the rules of, of music composition and songwriting. And I think the same goes for storytelling. Like, so I like to read about storytelling. I like to read, I like to listen to podcasts like this one about storytelling because it is a muscle that you have to keep exercising. Um, what are some projects you're working on right now that you're excited about? Well, I'm, I'm working, you know, I mentioned the, the ERCA podcast which is which is uh, should be out um, this spring on the iHeart on iHeart's uh, Microtura network. I'm working on a project called Snooze that's also scheduled to come out in the spring with uh, Megan Tan, who uh, created Wild with me, where we're helping we're helping people unsnooze things that they've been putting off for a long time. Um, and I think that that's, that's a really special, these are both really special shows because I think they're really going to help people in, in different ways. I think like a, a podcast about the amnesty bill is going to really show like 
especially younger generations, like what their parents had to go through. And I think Snooze is going to show people that they can overcome these things that they've been putting off for a long time. There's a couple of projects that I that haven't been announced yet, but I'm writing um, writing a movie and um, you know a couple of TV other TV projects that are in the works. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Uh, sounds like you got a couple of things on the burners. That's awesome. <laughs> yes, yes, yes. Yeah, <laughs> that's fantastic. It's, fun. it's, it's a good. It's a good time. <laughs> hey, where can people connect with you and find out more about your work? Uh, yeah, you can you can follow me on Twitter or on Instagram. Search for Eric Galindo. I do have a website. I really don't update it, but it's thisfood.com. Fantastic. I do I do post occasionally on Instagram. Yeah. And we'll have links to all your socials and your website also on the show notes for this episode. Um, Thanks, Michael. Yeah. Eric, this has been really fantastic. Thanks so much for your ideas and your inspirational stories and good luck with your projects. All right. Thanks a lot, Michael. We've got links to Eric's podcasts, Wild and Idolo, as well as links to his social media channels on our website, changethenarrative.net. The American stuff is already represented and you're expected to know it all. And you're expected to not, you know, not even know your background exists. You know, to me, working on Nickelodeon, making a show about brown kids, that's a revolutionary act right there. Uh, the asteroid's not coming to save us. I just think that, you know, we, we've got to fight the good fight. Next time on Change the Narrative, I talk with Pulitzer Prize recognized editorial cartoonist Lalo Alcaraz about telling stories with images, being political, and how working with Pixar on the film Coco got him accused of selling out. Change the Narrative is written and produced by me, Michael Hernandez. If you like the podcast, rate us and write a review. It helps people find us. And don't forget to subscribe to our newsletter. You can find details on our website, changethenarrative.net. <laughs>